Okay, if you will, let's uh, begin in chapter 2 and verse 5. And let me uh, give you a little bit of background before we actually enter into the discussion today. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was responding to the message brought to him by Chloe. And he also was responding with regards to the questions they had written to him, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. One of the major problems to which Paul was responding was they had a man who was living with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. And as he writes 2 Corinthians, he is responding regarding their response to him. Some had questioned Paul's sincerity. Some had questioned Paul's integrity. Some had questioned his authority. And uh, so Paul is having to defend himself against all of these false charges. As you begin chapter 1, you find one of the major things that they're making a major ordeal over is Paul's plans to come to Corinth. His original plan was to go to Corinth, go to Macedonia, go back to Corinth, and go to Jerusalem. However, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul says, I'm sorry, but I've got to do it different. I'm going to go to Macedonia, then I'm going to come to you, and then I'm going to go somewhere else. And they had charged Paul with being fickle. He couldn't make up his mind. And as we started chapter 2 last week, we observed that Paul said, I didn't want to come again to you with sorrow. I didn't want it to be another sorrowful visit. And so as we continue on, he's going to begin with verse 5, and we're going to read through verse 11. And we're going to have in the context here part of the problem that brought all of this on. So we read beginning with verse 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought to rather forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Well, I want you to go back at verse 5, and again, we're picking up in the middle of a, a discussion here. He says, anyone has caused grief, he said, he has not grieved me. When he says he, what does that imply? How many people are involved in this event? One person. The one person that I believe is the he here is the brother who has his father's wife back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. 
Okay, now, if I'm looking at this and I'm saying, but if anyone is caused grieved, he's not grieved me. Now, why would Paul be grieved with what had occurred? What does this mean? Would you be grieved if somebody committed a very flagrant, open, ugly sin in front of the congregation? What does it mean to be grieved after all? Upset. Upset's part of the word. There's another part of it. Sadness. Uh, to be grieved is to be upset in a sorrowful kind of way. And Paul said you should have rather mourned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but instead of mourning you are puffed up. So when you read about this person back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, but if anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you. When problems happen in a church, who suffers for it? The guy who come through and preached, like Brother Larry Acuff held our meeting this spring. And he taught a lot of things. Would Larry be grieved if he heard of some grievous sin here? Yes, probably to some degree. But not like we would. Because we live here. This is us. So Paul is trying to say, this is something that affects you. This is the one that affects the whole church. And then he says this last little phrase here, not to be too severe. Paul is talking about the grief this person has caused in the church. But why didn't he push that point real hard? Why didn't he just... Say, this man caused a lot of trouble now and just sticking good. Because he's wanting to go the other direction. Let's notice what we find here in verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. What was the punishment? The withdrawal of fellowship. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, I wrote unto you in my epistles not to keep company with fornicators. And then he goes on to explain, with such one know not to eat. Did they withdraw their fellowship from him? The majority did. The majority did what they were supposed to. Did it work? Obviously it did. Obviously this man looked and said, you know what, if everybody at church won't have fellowship with me because of the way I'm living, maybe I need to change my life. Now when you think about that, what does that tell you about church discipline? Will it work? If it is practiced consistently and it's practiced in love, it will work. Now, what is the general prevailing idea toward church discipline today? 
Okay, people afraid of lawsuits. Yeah. Who are you? You're being judgmental. You're telling me how I ought to live. Need to clean around your own front door before you come talk to me. Is that not the way people respond? How they respond? Pretty much. And so, how do people want? You know, when it comes up, well, brother so and so, man, they're living in adultery over there. They're committing fornication. He's a drunkard. Well, you know, if we say anything, that may it may upset him. Was church discipline meant to be upsetting? Yes. So he says it was sufficient for such a man. It brought about what you wanted it to bring about. So that's the reason why he is saying up here in verse 5 not to be too severe because if it was sufficient, you don't want to overdo it, do you? Let's say, for instance, your child is out here and you've got like a four or five year old child and uh, they're playing with matches. Do you want to correct that child? Yeah. Perhaps spank the child? But would you want to beat the child silly? No. That's going too far. Some people go too far. He said this was sufficient. It accomplished what it was intended to. Now look at verse 7. So that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him. Now before we read the rest of verse 7, now he says, on the contrary. Whenever you see the words on the contrary, what does that mean? Okay. Have you ever seen two sides of a coin? What's on the one side? Heads, other side, tails. On the contrary. Previously they have been shunning, they have been withdrawing their fellowship, they love the man, but they're not going to go along with him. And now he says, on the contrary, instead of withdrawing from this man, you should do something for him. And he says you need to forgive him and to comfort him. Now, uh, what does it mean to forgive? What does the word forgive mean? Blotting it out. Treating it as if he had never done it before. It's releasing of the debt. And for in addition to the forgiving and comfort. What does that mean? Okay. There's two words. Forgiving means you release the debt. What else do you do? Provide support. You're here to let that person know that you are forgiven. Let's say, for instance, I'm, WC never reminds me of using him for an illustration. Let's say, for instance, I steal WC's lawnmower. And uh, WC comes and says, Tony, you didn't treat me right. You stole my lawnmower. If you were any Christian at all, you'd take, bring my lawnmower back. And I'd say, okay, I'm going to take his lawnmower back. WC says, I forgive you. But you ever do anything like this again, I'll tell you I'll get you. <laughs> 
I'm going to keep my eye on you. You better not make a mistake or I'll let you have it. Now, is that forgiving and comforting? What is that? That's really holding the grudge. But in reality, a lot of times, people, when they forgive, want to put a person on probation for a long period of time, say, hmm, I'll let you know when I'm really ready to forgive you. And Paul is saying, now it's your responsibility to forgive him and comfort him. Let him know he's been forgiven. Do you think that latter part is forgiving hard sometimes? Yeah. But is it doubly hard to turn around and reassure and comfort a person that you've forgiven? That's a challenge, isn't it, folks? Well, that's what he's telling them that they must do. Go, y'all go ahead. Well, when he say, uh, you know, I forgive you, but if you're a big part of the that would be a really good thing to say. I, you know, I'm sorry, you know, that you that you felt you needed to. Was there some reason why you did that? Well, yeah, my, my grass is real big and I really need to, I need to mower. And I just took your mower. And he says, okay, I'll tell you what. I forgive you for saying that. And if you need the mower, I'll come bring it to you. I'll do. In other words, you, you're letting that person know that you've really forgiven them and you're not holding a grudge. That's what we're time. Church treasurer. <laughs> I mean, you can forgive, but you still have some precautions in place, can't you, to either protect others or protect themselves from detention? Well, I was going to say, that's where I think in reality you tell the person, if they've genuinely repented, which you have no reason to doubt that, then you can say, we, we love you, we appreciate you. Uh, but we're not going to put that temptation in front of you because what happened to you evidently was a temptation. And it would be wrong for us to put that temptation in front of you again. And, you know, we bear part of the responsibility for putting that in front of you like that. We didn't know to start with, but now we know we're not going to create a temptation for you. That's, that's a good point to bring up there. Okay, let's look at the latter part of verse 7. Lest perhaps a person be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now, um, what's Paul's point here in the latter part of verse 7? You've broken the man's spirit. He's repented. Now, uh, I grew up with a very hard father. And this is Father's Day. And I love the memory of my father. Don't misunderstand. He is a real hard man. Sometimes, as a teenager, I wondered if I could make him happy. Anybody ever felt like that before as a teenager? I'm not saying today. I'm saying, but as a teenager, you wondered if you could ever make your parents happy. What happens to a child who gets to a point where they feel like they can't make their parent happy? Yeah, they become so, to use Paul's term to the Colossians, fathers provoke not your children 
lest they be discouraged in order to the point where they feel like they can't ever accomplish anything. Well, here's a person who responds, the church has withdrawn the fellowship, and he comes back and he says, okay, I have repented, I am now separated from that woman that I should not have been uh, with, my father's wife, I am not ever going to do that again, I have repented, and I want to be restored to fellowship to the church. Do you forgive that person? Yes, you forgive that person. But what if a bunch of people say, I don't think he's sincere. I'm not going to say anything to him right now because I don't believe him. Well, you're judging somebody uh, senses. You can't do that. No, you don't know what's he going through in my Okay. to take his word for it. Is there anybody in the Bible that you can think of that went through that kind of situation? This attitude, I don't think I'm going to forgive him. Okay, may you think, Paul. What about the parable of the prodigal son? You know, the prodigal son went to a far country. He wasted his father's inheritance. He come back home and the father gave him a feast. They killed the fatted calf. They did all the, the things for it. But what about the older son? When they got ready for the feast, where was the older son? Outside sulking. You never killed a fatted calf for me and my friends so we can make merry. He said, son, all that I have is yours. Your brother, who was dead, is now alive. Don't you understand what this means? Sometimes people have the wrong attitude. That parable, the prodigal son, is as much about the attitude of the older brother as it is about the sinfulness of the younger brother. In fact, I suggest to you, if you study in context, the elder brother refers to the Pharisees, and the wasteful refers to the tax collectors and the harlots and the sinners whom Jesus had been associating with. And, it, and really the main point of that is to deal with their attitude. Well, I want you to notice what he says here in verse 8. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, uh, when you read that, there's sometimes words that take on some significance. The word reaffirm is in a tense in the original language, which means a one-time event. Now, if W.C. says to me, I'm going to use the stolen lawnmower again, he says, Tony, I forgive you, and I'll help you. But this was a church activity, wasn't it? This wasn't an individual between two individuals. This is between a man who has sinned and the congregation. They as a congregation have to reaffirm their love for him. Let me tell you what I think is involved in this because of the tense of the verb here. When they withdrew from him, was that just everybody sort of at their own leisure and pleasure? No. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, And when you, being gathered together, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Was withdrawal of fellowship a congregational activity? When were they supposed to do it? When the whole church was come together. You know, church discipline is not just dropping somebody's name off of a roll. Church discipline is when you get up and you announce, we love Brother John Doe. And Brother John Doe has decided he does not want to repent of his sin. And we want the congregation to know that as of today, we can't fellowship with Brother John Doe. Now, we don't do that out of hatred. We don't do it out of malice. We don't do it out of wickedness. We love Brother John Doe. We want him to be saved. Okay, John Doe repents. What do you do? I think there's got to be an announcement before the congregation, just like there was an announcement we've withdrawn from him. There's got to be an announcement before the congregation that says, we as a congregation receive Brother John Doe back in our fellowship. He is now a faithful child of God. Do you understand the point I'm making? In other words, you don't slip out the back door and you don't slip back in out of the back door. This is, this is an activity of the congregation. So I urge you to reaffirm your love to, her, to Him. In other words, this is an event. Now, verse 9, i got to speed up or I'm going to not cover all I intend to today. He says, For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Is church discipline a test of a congregation's obedience to everything? Yay or nay? It's one of the things. It's a hard one. Because in every congregation, when you start looking at the people who commit sins, who are they? There are physical brothers or sisters. Our physical sons or daughters. Our friends that we go fishing with. The guy that we work with at the plant. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? These are not just unnamed individuals. These are, these are real people here. And it's a test sometimes to see whether or not people will follow through with real church discipline. Now verse 10, Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, for indeed I have forgiven anything. Uh, if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Paul says, you know, I brought this up, but I want you to understand, if you've forgiven, I have forgiven. Now I've got to bring verse 11 into this. This is a very important verse. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Explain to me how that verse fits in this context. It's not difficult. You don't forgive somebody, then uh, you can be uh, looking down on somebody and say, take that and have an advantage. Uh, 
Okay. Let me ask you a question. How does Satan operate? What are his devices? He exploits us in our weaknesses. You remember when he went to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4? Jesus had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. What was the very first thing he said to him? Command this stone to become bread. In other words, he appealed to a weakness. And in appealing to it, did he make it sound good? You know, cast yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. And why? Because he said he will give his angels charge concerning you, lest at any time you should dash your foot against the stone. Don't worry about jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Their angel's going to catch you. And if you do that, everybody's going to see it, and they're going to be amazed, and they're going to believe, oh, that's a good idea. Do you believe that you can come up with a bunch of reasons why we ought not to forgive somebody? Especially somebody who's committed a very open, flagrant, vile sin. I mean, just be honest. If somebody here at this congregation and their father had passed away, or maybe the father hadn't passed away, and he moves in and starts living as man and wife with his mother or his stepmother, would that disturb you? Would that embarrass you? As a member of this congregation? Would me. Okay, now what are we going to do about it? We're all going to turn our heads and act like we didn't see it? Can't do that. Okay, you practice church discipline. Okay, the brother repents. What kind of reasonings do you have in your mind why you don't want to forgive him? You're afraid he's going to do it again. What else? What about your reputation in the community? Yeah, look, they took that fornicator back in the church out there. They got him leading singing. You understand the point I'm trying to make? We get worried about how our neighbors will think. We get worried about how our family will think. We get worried about all these other things. And in, the devil can give you a bunch of reasons why you ought not to forgive him. And Paul says, lest we uh, hear Satan gain an advantage or take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Don't let Satan take you and somehow use you in this. Okay, I've got about 15, 13, 14 minutes here to cover the rest of chapter 2. Let's go to verse 12 and 13. Change of thought. Still same major thing, but a different issue. Furthermore. Furthermore from what? Well, let me read this and then we'll come back. When I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord... I had no rest in my spirit, 
because I could, did not find Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. If I'm talking and I use the word furthermore, what does that mean? The continuance of an idea. The idea that Paul has still got in his mind is, why didn't I come to you the way I originally planned to go? Corinth, Macedonia, Corinth, Jerusalem. Changed his mind, goes to Macedonia, Corinth, and then he's going to end up going to Jerusalem. Furthermore, in other words, this is what happened on my journey. When I came to Troas, why did he go there? To preach Christ's gospel. And when he got there and he preached, what happened? He didn't find Titus there. Okay, before finding, not finding Titus. An opportunity. The door was opened to him by the Lord. What does that mean? The door is opened by the Lord. Okay. An opportunity. There were people there listening. There were people there who could be converted. And Paul found a great opportunity here. But he says... I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother. Have you ever been doing something and something is in the back of your mind bothering you, eating at you all along? That happens to me all the time. There'll be some, you know, I'm supposed to be working on a sermon and there's something else, maybe there's a problem that some family's got going on in their lives and They've come and asked me to talk with them about it or something that I know is happening. And it's just eating at me in my mind. And I, I can't focus. Any of you ever have that trouble? Focusing? Well, Paul says, I am here at Troas. A door has been opened to me, but Titus has not arrived. What does that tell you about Titus's plan? Okay, Titus is supposed to be there. Titus is not there. Let me give you an illustration here. Let's say, for instance, you're going to go with your family and spend the week in the Smoky Mountains. Let's say you're coming from Manville, and let's say they're coming from Atlanta. And you'll say, okay, we're going to meet at the entrance of the park about noon on Thursday. Okay? You arrive there at noon on Thursday and they're not there. Your children are not there. You wait to 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. It's time for you to go check in the hotel and your kids are not there. You think you can go out and play putt-putt? I can tell you, Tony wouldn't be. Today we'd pick up that cell phone and we'd say, you know... I'm going to find out where y'all at. What's going on? What's wrong? What, something happened to you. In those days, what did they do? <laughs> they had to wait. Okay, now, he's been waiting here. Evidently, if you're, if you're studying the time element, because of the things like Paul talking about, I want to spend here the Pentecost and the Passover... Here, if Pentecost is drawing near, it's getting close to wintertime. 
And you know what you do in wintertime? You don't sell the Aegean Sea because the swells are so high that most ships would just flip over. And so they don't sail in the Aegean. Uh, I know when we took our last trip to Greece and Turkey, I wanted to go in January, last of December, January, said, sorry, we don't go. I said, well, why not? Because ships don't cruise in the Aegean in January and February. The swells are too, you know, they already have wrecks over there. You don't want to be, you don't want to be in a wreck, do you? So, Paul says, I waited for Titus here, did not find my brother, but taking leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. I think there's a reason why Paul went to Macedonia. To find Titus. You know, if you know that your family is coming from McMinnville to Gatlinburg, and it's by 5 o'clock that day you're supposed to meet at noon, what would you do? No cell phones involved. You would track their direction, the, the route that you expected them to come. You would go backwards, wouldn't you? And start looking for them. And see if you could find them. I suggest to you Titus is coming through Macedonia, and that's why Paul heads to Macedonia. And that explains something to these Corinthians who are charging Paul with just being fickle. He can't make up his mind. He said, furthermore, when I went to Troas, there was a door open for me there. But he says, I had no rest of my spirit. He says, taking leave of them, I went to Macedonia because I was looking for Titus. That is an important explanation of why Paul did what he did. Now, finally, let's take verses... 14 through 17 of chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death unto death. And to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, or we are not as so many peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now, I know there's some of that that's very difficult to read because of the location, the way he's trying to describe it. But let's begin back here in verse 14. God always leads us in triumph. And He is through us diffusing the aroma or the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. Paul didn't stay at Troas. He went on to Macedonia. Is that okay? Is that okay? Yeah. Because everywhere Paul goes, what's he going to do? Preach the gospel. He is going to leave the fragrance. He's using a figure of speech here. An aroma of knowledge in every place to which he goes. 
And he says it is a fragrance of those who are being to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Who all gets to hear the word? Everybody does. To one, it is the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. There are some things that to one person has a wonderful aroma. To another person, it is an aroma of a nauseating smell. How many of you like the smell of onions cooking? Nobody? Some of you love the smell of onions cooking. You know what I, I think when I smell onions cooking? Ugh. Onions make me sick. And so when I smell onions cooking, I think the many times that everybody tells me, oh, just eat them, it'll, it'll, they'll be good. And then later on I'm sick and I'm like, why do I let people tell me that? They make me sick every time. So when I smell onions cooking, you know what I think? Ugh. Some of you smelling onions cooking, instead of ugh, y'all say, mmm. Smells good. When you have the gospel being preached, some people say, mmm, that's good, life. Others hear it, they go, ugh. I don't like it telling me that what I'm doing is wrong and the life I'm living is bad. And it's a, it's a condemning message to them. Well, I'm going to run out of time, so let me get to verse the latter part of verse 16 and into verse 17. And who is sufficient for these things? I'm not going to address that phrase because it's going to go on into chapter 3. That is uh, an introductory phrase to chapter 3. But verse 17 still goes with verse or chapter 2. For we are not... As so many peddling the Word of God. What does that tell you about a lot of people by the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians? What is a peddler? I, this is an older class than the like that runs in room one. How many of you remember the peddler? It was a rolling store. And he came and he sold you stuff. That's why he made his money. There's some people who are peddling the Word of God. They're going to this city and that city, and what are they doing it for? Money. When Paul writes Timothy, he says these people suppose that godliness is a means of gain. He tells Timothy to withdraw himself from such folks. He says, but as of sincerity... But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. We are sincere in what we're doing. We're not out here peddling the Word of God. And I think that is a backhanded way of challenging these people who are there at Corinth making money. And what has, how much has Paul been paid by Corinth? Zero. Was Paul paid? Yes. 
He said, I robbed other churches taking wages of them that I might minister to you. But he said, I didn't take a penny from you. Didn't take a drachma from you. Okay. Not here. He will later. We'll pick up with chapter... Yeah, that's the peddling is the is the original word there. Okay. We'll pick up here next week.